Welcome to an episode of What Am I Doing Here Anyway? A podcast presented by Miss Heard Media. What Am I Doing Here Anyway? is a celebration of the girls, women, and femme folks who are navigating life as best as we can. This podcast features personal stories, interviews, how-to, life skills, and inspiring stories from history. This podcast looks at the many, many answers to the question, what am I doing here anyway? Hey friends, I've missed you all. I've been offline. I went to go work on the heavy metal cruise. I brought back some ick and life started lifing. You know how that goes. But I was reflecting a little bit as you know, the new year leads one to do and thinking about how I missed history. I really missed creating the girl powered planner as I'd done in the previous years for Miss Earth Media, which was like a cute physical planner where a different girl or femme was highlighted every day. And I did the interview with Caitlin Calgira from a tour of her own a few weeks ago, which go listen to that episode. It's great. Caitlin's awesome. And I remembered about a talk that I gave during one of her amazing events. And with Women's History Month, like literally days away, I thought, why the heck not bring it back? No one's ever heard it. That wasn't at the event. So why not? And I think it's as relevant now as it was in 2019, so I'm sharing a sort of abridged version of that talk. Uh, Just, you know, as an aside, some updates have been made, some things have been deleted, and some information is left exactly as it was in 2019. So bear with me, here it goes. Today, we are doing some heavy lifting we're rethinking how girls and women have made history. There are names in every history book that are household names. Of course, we know Abigail Adams, Eleanor Roosevelt, Michelle Obama, Rosa Parks. But what about the girls and women whose names that we don't know? Firstly, I wanna talk a little bit about how we talk about teenage girls. And when society, when your friends, when your neighbors, your parents, your teachers, think of ordinary teenage girls, sometimes they think, Silly, like frivolous, dramatic, loud. That's how they get described. But what about history makers, change makers, historical actors? It dawned on me in college and many times uh, doing the work of Miss Heard that many historical figures were in fact teenage girls and young women, although they were not necessarily thought of that way during their lifetime or even in the historical record. Part of the reason for that is that childhood and the teenage years are relatively new inventions. The way that we think of the teen years today didn't really exist until the 1900s. And the truth is that girls have always existed and therefore, even in their often marginalized roles, they have done things that mattered. A hundred years ago, we didn't think about youth the same way we think about it today. Although maybe we should, before writing young women off as silly, remember that a hundred years ago, we might have celebrated young women as warriors, as rulers of empires, and mothers of revolution. And if we go back and look, we can see people that we would consider today girls and young women making change. Because of the internet, it's easier today for girls to connect, share, and celebrate their accomplishments and the accomplishments of others like them. I hope that with this increased access, comes more representation of girls and women who have made change, large and small. Because as it stands currently, girls, and especially girls who are marginalized, are not seen in American history. Their stories deserve to be told, and girls deserve to see themselves represented in our nation's history. Girls' history is history. Period. 
My name is Lindsay Turnbull. I'm the owner and founder of Misheard Media, currently the home of What Am I Doing Here Anyway podcast, as you know. Uh, the podcast that asks amazing women and femmes, what am I doing here anyway? And spoiler alert is basically that we are all making it up as we go along. In my misheard career, one of the pieces of media I was most proud of creating was the Girl Powered Planner, which featured 365 days of girls, femmes, and young women under 25 who contributed to American history. The planner and the impetus behind it is the foundation of this talk. And because I am a trained historian, I need to add a disclaimer that I am only scratching the surface of the incredible amount of girls and women who made history. And I look forward to learning more about change-making girls and women, especially with the help of social media, the internet, and new historical technologies and discoveries. Ironically, I did not like history growing up. I thought it was memorizing names and dates from people a long time ago that I didn't care about, and I didn't see the relevance to today. It was just boring, dead people fighting war. I was furious when my mom and guidance counselor forced me to take AP U.S. History because it would be good practice for college. That said, my AP U.S. History teacher, Mr. Douglas O'Brien, made history come alive. He made it interesting, exciting, and most of all, relevant to my current life. From his teaching, I learned how people, shaped by and shaping our culture, made decisions that we're still living with today, for better and for worse. Mr. O'Brien ignited my passion for the past and when I followed into college and graduate school, where I finally learned more about historical actresses and badass women that changed things. And to this day, I still get joy from reading about a woman that stands up and makes history. Hell yeah, you did. The idea of girls and women in history is really a question that I didn't get to until upper level history classes. I don't even think that I considered the small ways women influence society at large, like academically. <laughs> Until I read Dixie's Daughters by Karen Cox, which was about elite white Southern women who focused on vindicating white Southern men after the Civil War. There's a distinct and noticeable lack of women in text. A teacher friend of mine let me know that her mandated history text that she must teach has seven women out of 100 figures that must be taught. 7%. The result is that we only see the most visible women in history. And because we were taught history in this way, all through school, we see this as normal. And this illustrates two problems. Um, one is that many, many women are left out, even those who did in fact make, quote unquote, the big changes. And two, it defines change making and historical significance in a very narrow and specific way. That change makers must be elected officials, first ladies, or the face of movement. It doesn't take into account the way that change happens from the ground up, or how individual decisions made by everyday people can spark something bigger. This affects the portrayals of everyone in history. Are you telling me that Dixie's daughters, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, did not have an impact despite actively shunning political power? They fought against the right to vote, and yet look around at the statues of Confederate soldiers and rebel flags in non-Confederate states even, and tell me that again. Their legacy, which granted, it was one of the lost cause of racism, sexism, privilege. It permeates our society today just as much as the myth of the founding fathers. And yet, I did not even learn about these women until my third year of college. It took going to college and focusing on race and gender in American history to understand why the lost cause mythology and ideology is so pervasive in America. And we are still fighting this today. And who are the primary preservers of history? 
who are the ones that keep the letters and the diaries and manage the family archives and heirlooms, who make the family trees and who run the house museums. It is primarily women, and so it is doubly shameful that they are left out, written off, or just ignored. And that means many, many are left behind, especially those who are marginalized because of their race, religion, nationality, disability, sexuality, etc. The history we learn is mostly white, middle-aged, middle and upper class, Christian, straight, and male. And I don't know about you, but that is not the reality of people I see who live on this hunk of land. It's not today, and it was not in 1619 either. So we still don't know. We still don't hear the stories of girls and young women who made change in smaller and important ways. What about the young women who served along the soldiers on the battlefields in the Revolution, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, as nurses, spies, soldiers, many of whom were denied military pensions and were denied right to be buried in Arlington? Don't their stories matter? Didn't they make a difference too? Aren't they history makers too? It means that how we see women who made history as those who were the first ever to do something. We primarily see those who are credited with big changes, like Rosa Parks, but we don't always see the Claudette Colvins of the world. Claudette Colvin was a young black teen girl who also refused to give up a seat on a bus to a white woman. And when recalling the incident, Claudette Colvin said, History kept me stuck to my seat. I felt the hand of Harriet Tubman pushing down on one shoulder and Sojourner Truth pushing down on the other. She was one of five women before Rosa Parks who filed lawsuits to end segregation. Although activists were hesitant to make Claudette Colvin the face of the movement because she was discovered to be pregnant and she was not married. She eventually located to New York and ultimately Rosa Parks was chosen as the face of the bus boycotts. She was a quote unquote respectable choice. She was married, a high school graduate employed by the NAACP. She was not the first to come up with the idea of a sit-in. She was not alone in her actions. She had the support of the NAACP, her legal team, local black churches, other activists. And that's not to take away from what she did, because she did do an incredible thing. And she paid for it. She and her husband lost their jobs and moved to Detroit although she continued to be an activist throughout her life. But I want to pair this story with a quote, and it's one of my favorites from graduate school. And it's, if I have ever seen further, it is because I stood on the shoulders of giants. The stories of these brave women, Rosa Parks and Claudette Colvin, the stories of all brave women are intertwined. And if you think about it, every one of us is standing on the shoulders of at least one giant, a family member, a mentor, a role model, a historical figure. And granted, I am mostly focusing on Americans. I'm leaving some people out. Maybe I'm not drawing a line from point A to point B, but hopefully you get the idea. Someone has to open the door. And yes, I'm going to talk mostly about girls who made the big changes. And honestly, for most girls who are active right now, it is not yet possible to predict the lasting historical impact of their actions. And as we go further back in history, it's much harder to find the stories of the everyday girls who made a difference. It's a challenge to find these groups, like Dixie's daughters, that worked relatively behind the scenes to enact their version of change. But when we come to the present, luckily, it's much easier to find and celebrate the amazing and audacious young women who have done things large and small. Their names may be forgotten to history in a hundred years, but someone will remember them. We will remember them. And when you think about it, many of those who I speak about started out as ordinary young women. 
They didn't necessarily have every advantage in the world, and they didn't grow up knowing they would change the face of sports or science or whatever. And I hope knowing that can be comforting or even inspiring. When you feel like you can't do anything, just think of your favorite idol, like a teeny tiny little baby Ruth Bader Ginsburg or a very young Michelle Obama. As a little girl, playing with her toys, going to school, just like you did. And if they could face discrimination and navigate their many, many obstacles and naysayers to become powerful, successful, and visible women, then maybe you too can make a difference in your own way. All of our actions add up. Girls and women stand on the shoulders of giants. And I chose four categories to talk about a few girls and women. But as a historian and a perfectionist, this was challenging. And hopefully <laughs> you learned about some new people. The first woman in space did not grow up dreaming of space. Valentina Tereshkova grew up with two siblings, daughter of a single mother after her father passed in World War II. She worked at a textile mill. She lived a completely ordinary life, except that she liked to skydive, which led to her selection in the cosmonaut program. In 1961, the Soviet director of the cosmonauts said, quote, we cannot allow the first women in space will be an American. So five women were chosen to train. And Tereshkova was the one to complete the spacewalk, and she made a beautiful piece of Soviet propaganda as the daughter of a farmer who died in the Winter War. After her launch in 1963, she reported back that the Earth was so beautiful. Tereshkova orbited the Earth 48 times and retired from the Air Force as a major general. She is still alive at the time of this recording. Back in the United States, astronauts were required to be military test pilots, which was not a career available to women until 1978, when anti-discrimination lawsuits were passed. So in the U.S., law often took time to catch up to changing societal beliefs and values. Luckily for Sally Ride, who wanted to be a pro tennis player, she decided to go to college and earn her Ph.D. in 1978. The year before, she answered a news ad from NASA who were looking for scientists to go into space. As one of five women selected, she was asked the very important questions such as how space would affect her ability to reproduce, how much makeup would she be willing to take into space, and if she would sob during a crisis. She replied, it's too bad this is such a big deal and that our society isn't further along. In 1983, Ride became the first American woman in space, the third overall, and the first gay astronaut. She flew two missions, she investigated Challenger and Columbia disasters. And after retiring, she created a company that made science programs for girls so that she could inspire the next generation of scientists and astronauts. Mae Jemison loved science from a young age and grew up watching space missions and Captain Uhura on Star Trek. At just 16 years old, she entered Stanford and earned her MD in 81. As one of the only black students, she faced a lot of racism and discrimination. She taught dance. She served in the Peace Corps. And although Jemison applied to NASA, it, she was halted by the Challenger disaster. She reapplied. She was persistent and flew her only mission in 92. And on her trip, she literally brought her giants with her. She took a poster from the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater and a photo of Bessie Coleman, the first black woman to fly, a to fly a plane. She resigned in 93, which brings us to young women of today slash 2019. Abigail Harrison and Taylor Richardson. 
astronaut Abby dreams of being the first person on Mars. Uh, her interest in space was fostered by an eighth grade project where she contacted astronauts on Twitter. She founded the NGO Mars Generation to promote STEM and space exploration. Uh, she hopes to earn her PhD and also be the first person on Mars. Taylor Richardson was inspired by horror giant Mae Jemison. She has been recognized by many outlets for her work uh, creating scholarships to send other girls to space camp. She has even been recognized by the Obama White House. I hope these girls get to go to space, but even if they don't, they have made their mark on history by spreading their passion, exposing hundreds of other young girls to space, technology, and science. Even if they never set foot in space, it's possible they may make discoveries that we can't even fathom yet. And of course, the importance of laws changing affects women's opportunities. So I want to switch and talk about Title IX, which banned sex-based discrimination in any school that receives federal funding. 50 years before the passage of Title IX, a little girl named Althea Gibson was born to sharecroppers in the Great Depression. She was very gifted in tennis from a young age, but she was also really good at fighting and dropped out of school at 13 and moved into a shelter. At first, Althea hated tennis. She would rather fight people if she lost. Luckily, she knew she had talent. With a lot of training, she went to FAMU on full scholarship. Unfortunately, she was barred from many tournaments because technically racism wasn't allowed, but matches were held at whites-only clubs. In response to a scathing lobbying from retired champ, Alice Marble, who was a white woman, Gibson became the first black player to compete at the national and international level. She's considered the Jackie Robinson of tennis or the Althea Gibson of tennis. <laughs> she won her first international championship a year later. She became the first black woman to win a grand slam and the first black champion ever of Wimbledon. She was the first black woman on the covers of Sports Illustrated in time and retired after winning 56 titles. At this time, players didn't win prize money and endorsements were banned. When I looked around me, I saw that white tennis players, some of whom I had thrashed on the court, were picking up offers and invitations, Gibson wrote. Suddenly it dawned on me that my triumphs had not destroyed the racial barriers once and for all, as I had, perhaps naively, hoped. Or if I did destroy them, they had been erected behind me again. Gibson also competed in the LPGA, facing many of the same racial barriers and still breaking records. Fellow tennis player Billie Jean King said, if it hadn't been for Althea Gibson, it would not have been easy for the others who followed. Gibson was inducted into the International Women's Sports Hall of Fame. Title IX changed things for girls in sports. It prohibited discrimination in all federally funded education programs. It is also known as the Patsy Mink Equal Opportunity in Education Act, named for the first woman of color elected to Congress. Advocates of Title IX cite it as the reason we see so many incredible high school and college female student athletes. Billie Jean King was born into a sporty family, and she was great at baseball and softball but switched to tennis because it was more ladylike. She took free lessons, uh, honing her skills and learning to tone down her aggressiveness. She was the fifth woman to win titles at all Grand Slam events and has won 20 titles at Wimbledon. She's probably best known for the 1973 Battle of the Sexes when she was 29, playing against 55-year-old Bobby Riggs, who had boasted loudly about an earlier Battle of the Sexes win. 
50 million Americans watched this match where <laughs> Billie Jean King entered the ring in a litter carried by shirtless men and gifted Riggs with a piglet representing his chauvinism. It's considered a milestone in women's tennis. And today, King is still an advocate for gender equality and social justice. And of course, we know the GOATs. Venus and Serena Williams, they started playing tennis from a young age. And although they faced racism in the tennis world, Serena was the number one under 10 player in Florida, and she reached out and wrote letters to Althea Gibson, which is kind of a perfect encompassment of why representation matters. The girls competed in their first pro tournament at age 14, and it was onwards and upwards. Serena has won 23 Grand Slam win titles, Venus 7. Collectively, they've won 12 Wimbledon titles, 4 gold medals, and 4 consecutive Grand Slam doubles titles. Both have been ranked as number one and have many more titles, uh, more than I can fit into this podcast. And Serena Williams continues to push the limit of sports from showing up in a non-regulation tutu to winning the Australian Open while 20 weeks pregnant and competing just four months after giving birth. And Coco Goff was 15, the youngest player to advance to the main draw at Wimbledon in 2019, where she defeated her idol, Venus Williams, and was the youngest player since 91 to win the first round. At 15, she was the youngest player to win a Women's Tennis Association title in 15 years, and she's been playing since she was six. And even if Coco is forgotten in 100 years, except to rabid tennis fans, they will have inspired a generation of young girls to see sports, especially girls of color, at something they can do and excel at. And this may not have been the case 100 years ago, or even 50 years ago, before the passage of Title IX. Title IX didn't just change things for tennis. Look at the U.S. women's national soccer team, the most winning international soccer team. Look at Simone Biles, who's the most decorated gymnast ever. When given the opportunity, girls will exceed expectations. And girls have been excelling in sports and taking huge strides in the street. If we look on the news, it seems like we're hearing a lot about youth activists. And one of my favorites is Gwendolyn Sanders. She was in seventh grade when she helped lead the Children's March for Civil Rights in Birmingham. The idea of putting children on the front lines while facing violence was controversial, but about a thousand students participated. The white police commissioner ordered police and fire departments to use fire hoses and police dogs on the children. The images of this protest are some of the most famous to come out of the civil rights movement. Children as young as eight were arrested, and President Kennedy and the DOJ had to get involved. The Children's March was one of the things that motivated Kennedy and other lawmakers to pass the civil rights bill. Gwendolyn Sanders is an American hero. We continue to see youth rise to the occasion, even during tragedy. In 2018, a former student killed 17 teachers and students at Parkland High School. In a moment of tragedy, grieving students went above and beyond what might have been expected in the face of horror to form the March for Our Lives movement. The group organized a school walkout with 3,000 schools participating, but that was just the beginning. The movement, headed by four boys and three girls, organized, at the time, the single largest day of protest against gun violence, with 1.2 to 2 million people coming out to promote new gun safety regulations. In D.C., the standout speakers were movement founder Emma Gonzalez and Naomi Wadler, who was just 11 years old at the time. Citing inspiration from the Freedom Riders civil rights activists, they toured the U.S. on the road to change, registering 50,000 new voters and an additional 800,000 people on National Voter Registration Day, 
with mayors for our lives. They credit themselves with a 47% increase in youth voter turnout in 2018, and 46 NRA-sponsored candidates lost their seat. The same year, I saw two youth climate marches. The first was a march in a lobby day hosted by This Is Zero Hour, which took place in the pouring rain on the National Mall. This Is Zero Hour was led by 16-year-old Jamie Margolin, Nadia Nazar, Madeline Tu, and Xanadi Ortiz, and dedicated to climate justice and protecting the earth by getting to the roots of climate change, which include all forms of oppression. The second, the youth climate strike, was led by eight youth-led organizations and dozens of adult organizations and allies in striking for the climate to call attention to the issues and build momentum heading into the UN Global Climate Summit. The strike kicked off a week of action, all led by youth and supported by an adult coalition. Thinking about my youth, this barely seems possible. How could a handful of teenagers, even incredibly knowledgeable and brave ones, pull off this scale of organizing? It's got to be some sort of, I don't know, liberal boogeyman behind it all. But no, it's here that I want to point out that youth marchers and protesters have, throughout history, been accused of being paid off, being plants, being coached. And some part of that might be true. They probably have media coaching, and they might have sponsorships. But these are benefits that adults regularly get for speaking up and standing out. Also, they are connected through social media and Slack channels, which allow for instant communication as well as access to people and publications that matter, that I did not have as a youth, even though I grew up with, in part, internet access at home. And if you don't think teenagers can be eloquent or savvy, you just haven't spent enough time around them. Some women sprinted so girls today can soar. This is the case of Rachel Carson, the mother of the modern environmental movement. Carson began her girl, her life as a girl who lived on a farm and just really loved to read and write. Her first story was published when she was 10. In college, she studied biology and got a master's in zoology, but she was forced to leave school to support her family through the Great Depression, but eventually got a job writing for the Fish and Wildlife Service. In the 40s, Carson was concerned with the use of synthetic pesticides that had been developed by the military especially the widely used DDT. There was little interest until 62, when her book, Silent Spring, showed how harmful DDT was to people and the planet. Carson withstood really aggressive personal attacks from chemical companies and public officials while she underwent cancer treatment, but she remained firm. Silent Spring became a pillar of the 60s environmental movement, which led to a successful campaign to ban DDT and the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency in the 1970s. Silent Spring is listed as one of the best science books of the 20th century and changed the scientific world. Rachel Carson's legacy implores people to understand the environmental consequences of our actions. Jane Goodall is the world's most foremost is the world's foremost expert on chimpanzees. Her love formed at a young age when her father gave her a stuffed chimp instead of a teddy bear, which fostered her love of animals. She started a 55-year-long study on wild chimps in 1960 when she was 26 as a secretary for the famous archaeologist the Leakey family in Tanzania. She had no formal education, which some claim gave her more wiggle room when it came to studying wild animals. She named her subjects, seeing that each animal had a unique personality, which was very controversial at the time. Jane Goodall went on to get her PhD without getting her bachelor's first. She's the founder of the Jane Goodall Institute and Roots and Shoots, seeking to educate people on conservation and animal welfare. Notably, she teaches that conservation must include the needs of local people, and she still has that stuffed chimp. Wangari Mathai, the first African woman to win a Nobel Peace Prize, 
uh, founded the Greenbelt Movement, an environmental organization focused on planting trees, conservation, and women's rights. One of the things that her movement did was pay women to plant seedlings and pay husbands and sons to keep records of seedlings. With Matai's work, we see the intersection of women's issues, poverty alleviation, and conservation. Gardens are named for her in D.C. and Pittsburgh, which is really the issue of our time. And this time, when we look at this movement, is truly when I feel the most optimistic, despite what often feels like crushing resistance from deniers, racists, sexists, bullies, and billionaires. I want to talk about this movement because it's literally bursting at the seams with young people from all backgrounds, of all abilities, all races, all sexualities, all gender expressions. They speak many different languages, comes from many different types of families, different income levels, etc. And when I think about the future of the United States and the future of leadership and the future of girls, I think of the climate movement, and it gives me hope. But first, let's go back to 92, before Greta. There was Severne Cullis Suzuki, a Canadian activist. She was the daughter of environmentalist David Suzuki. She founded the Environmental Children's Organization at her school at age six. By 12, she raised enough money to attend the Earth Summit, where she and her organization spoke from a youth perspective. Her speech was called The Girl Who Silenced the World for Five Minutes. Of this experience, Suzuki said, We figured it was mostly going to be old men, sitting around, making decisions that are going to affect our future and the future generation. So we wanted to go with the conscience as a reminder to those decision makers who their decisions truly would affect. She credits that speech as having a big impact on her life. And of course, we know Greta Thunberg, the student who began her climate strike in 2018 to raise awareness on the lack of climate action. Other students soon joined her, forming the movement Fridays for the Future, and strikes took place every Friday. Greta cites the March for Our Lives movement as inspiration. She's spoken at the UN, at Davos. She's been on the cover of Time. She's known for her very direct speeches and credits her autism as a strength, helping her to think outside the box, speak directly, and see the problem in stark terms. Greta cites that the climate action gave her new life before she claimed she had no energy, no friends, and she didn't speak to anyone. She persists in calling out climate change deniers and politicians very loudly and directly. And if we're old enough, we might remember Severn or consider Greta as the face of the movement. There are many other girls, especially indigenous girls, who are standing up and have been standing up even before Greta. And to me, this is extremely impactful because these young people, in many cases, are standing up against centuries of colonialism, racism, and sexism. Unlike in previous decades, this climate movement is youth-centered, predominantly female, predominantly people of color, and intersectional. These young people are on the front lines of the climate crisis because, they're, because of their place in society. Youth and women of color are most likely to feel the greatest impacts of climate change and fur. There are a lot of them, and they are all incredibly brilliant, resilient, and passionate, so please... Forgive me for only scratching the surface of them and their stories. The co-founders of This Is Zero Hour include Jamie Marglin, a Jewish Colombian American lesbian, and Nadia Nizar, who got her start as a Girl Scout and spoke at the UN last year. They marched in the pouring rain on the National Mall and helped execute the climate strike. Marglin has spoken before Congress and was named one of BBC's most influential women of 2019. Autumn Peltier is a water warrior. Her first foray into activism was at age eight inspired by her aunt, Josephine, the founder of the Mother Earth Water Walkers. From a young age, Autumn knew that not all people living in Canada had clean water. She has spoken at the Assembly of First Nations to Justin Trudeau and the UN. 
She was nominated for the International Children's Peace Prize and serves as the Chief Water Commissioner for the Anishinaabek Nation. Uh, forgive me if I butchered the pronunciation, which was a position previously held by her Aunt Josephine. Jaslyn Charger's mother taught her and her twin sister about marches and meetings in the Black Hills. Guided by her nephew and mentor, Joseph Whiteyes, Jaslyn took on larger organizing roles. In 2017, they brought together the Seven Council Fires youth to create a cross-country run to bring attention to the Standing Rock crisis and oppose the Dakota Access Pipeline. They did successfully complete the run. They did meet with the White House, but the uh, pipeline was constructed anyway. Charger went on to found the International Indigenous Youth Council, with other female identifying and two-spirit people who participated in the Standing Rock Indigenous Uprising. This organization seeks to organize youth through education, spiritual practices, and engagement to create positive change and protect land, water, culture, ceremonies, and enact social justice through nonviolent action. Mari Kopeni, aka Little Miss Flint, is an example of how young people of color are first and heavily affected by poor policies and environmental and climate crises. She and Flint's other 100,000 residents were drinking water that was so lead-filled and so contaminated, it corroded new parts at General Motors. It contained enough lead to be classified as toxic waste. The switch occurred as part of a money-saving scheme by Governor Rick Snyder, who switched the water supply to the heavily polluted and corroded Flint River without properly treating it. Uh, He will not be charged for this new development. Flint residents, who are primarily black and brown, suffered from outbreaks of Legionnaire's disease and risk possible long-term developmental issues from lead exposure. Mari wrote to President Obama, who visited her and set aside $100 million to repair the corroded pipe, and Mari distributed 700,000 water bottles to local families. She has screened movies, donated school supplies, and held block parties for underserved children in her community. She is running for president in 2044. In a world where gaps between haves and have-nots are widening and environmental protections are slashed to promote big business, it's easy to see how the situation in Flint could be replicated across the nation as clean water becomes scarce. There's no incentive to build to safe standards, and there's not really recourse for people who complain. A 2016 study found that people of color are more likely to live near large corporate polluters, or corporate polluters are more likely to move into impoverished communities, and breathe polluted air, which can lead to lung conditions, heart attacks, asthma, and premature death. For example, fracking and hazardous waste disposal are more likely to take place in impoverished and or communities of color without the input of residents who often lack the power to take on the government or corporations, and they often do not have the ability to move. Marginalized communities will continue to be at risk at the hands of these institutions. These policies are the result of decades of segregation, redlining, and environmental racism. That said, our government uh, is not doing a great job of promoting EPA regulation. The climate movement is intersectional and international, and I encourage you to look up some of the amazing leaders doing work in your country, your state, your community, and across the world. Their work affects the safety and stability of the ground we are literally standing on. There's a quote. If she can see it, she can be it. I've barely covered even a fraction of the amazing girls and women who have made change and are currently fighting for a better, more just world. You can see it in the past and in the present, even if it's not in history. You just have to look. I hope that one day we will have academic tomes written about these girls, just as we have 800 biographies for every president and war hero. There's a great thesis out there for a PhD student on intersectionality and the new climate. In the meantime, we have to keep telling these stories in order to keep them alive 
and fresh and new and relevant and to inspire the girls in our own lives to be the architects of their dreams and to inspire ourselves. We have to tell these stories in order to remember that others have done this too. We're not alone. We have to let ourselves be inspired and surprised by these determined and powerful women and girls. And we have to encourage them, nurture them, and many times just get the hell out of the way. This has been another episode of What Am I Doing Here Anyway? Follow us on Instagram at Miss Bird Media. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.